This podcast was sponsored by the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. Whether you are a student with a professional interest in academic Jewish studies, a prospective educator in Jewish secondary schools who wants to make a difference in the lives of your students and your community, or simply a person who seeks intellectual challenge and growth, the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies is the place for you. For more information, visit yu.edu slash revel. Greetings, I am Rabbi Ari Lam, Special Advisor to the President of Yeshiva University, and my guest this evening is the incomparable, indefatigable, and insightful Professor Christine Hayes. Professor Hayes is the Robert F. and Patricia Ross Weiss Professor of Religious Studies at Yale University, and she's a renowned scholar in the history of ancient Judaism and rabbinic literature in particular. She's written about everything from the divergencies between the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Bavli, the history of intermarriage and conversion in early Jewish thought, and Jewish law in the larger context of legal history. Her two most recent projects both relate to that last topic. One is the Cambridge Companion to Judaism and Law, uh, which she edited, just published in uh, this past year in 2017. And the other is called What's Divine About Divine Law, published in 2015, which won the National Jewish Book Award for Scholarship. She's a leader in her field, an internationally celebrated thinker. Professor Hayes, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm very, very happy to be here. Uh, before diving into your recent uh, and your upcoming work, I'd like for people to get a better sense of your approach um, to the larger world of Jewish culture and learning. So you once described yourself uh, when you started college at Harvard as uh, Hermione Granger, um, curious about and wanting to know everything. Uh, so what's interesting to me about Hermione is that although she grew up a muggle, a non-wizard, she takes muggle studies while she's at Hogwarts. And that was always a bit how I felt uh, doing my doctorate in ancient Jewish history and Talmud. I'm sort of studying myself in this kind of solipsistic, self-referential way um, and probing my own kind of cultural genealogy. But your story is a different one uh, coming from outside the Jewish community. So what is it like to study Jewish history and in particular some of the texts like the Bavli uh, that sit at the very heart of Jewish life uh, to this very day from the outside? What's it like studying the Muggles? That's a great question, and it's not that easy to answer because I guess over the course of time, my positionality to what I study has sort of shifted. Um, you don't do something for 30 years and stay on the outside. <laughs> so um, the deeper that you dive into something and the more passionate you are about it, the more it just becomes the way you move and live and breathe, and it becomes your environment for thinking. So I um, certainly was drawn to the study of um, Jewish culture, Jewish texts, Jewish history. I remember a particular moment, actually, as a junior in college, sort of saying to myself, this is what I, this is what I want to do. This is how dare I go through life not understanding that the world is, appears very differently. Um, the story of the course of history in Western civilization looks very different from another perspective, and it's a very rich and interesting perspective. I want to understand that. I want to step inside that world and understand it from the inside out. So, yes, I suppose in some ways I'm an outsider, but um, the life of the mind is an interesting thing, and one can very much begin to inhabit the ways of thought and the the cultural and intellectual world of a culture that perhaps wasn't one you were given in your early education, but we all ultimately acquire our knowledge of the world through education. And no matter where it begins and when it begins, you can enter into it. So to me, it just feels very natural. I, I know that to others who meet me, I always I have this label, Christine, right? It sort of announces <laughs> right off the bat that, hmm, yeah, what's, what's your story? Um, but it's, it's something that I haven't thought about for a very long time. It just feels very natural. It's what I do every day. 
So interesting that you say that because I remember watching you give a lecture at, at Cornell a couple of years ago uh, and you took a drink of water and I remember feeling very jarred when you didn't make a bracha. And I was like, what's going on? And then I, it, it took me a second to think about it. So it's so interesting to hear you describe mm -hmm. it that way. Mm -hmm. One of the central questions underpinning uh, modern society concerns the nature of law. Uh, what is law? Why is it binding? What are its sources? Uh, what does it suggest about how citizens should behave? Um, and although today we're used to asking these questions in secular terms, that discourse itself is grounded in a deep tradition of thinking about divine law. Um, so in your book, What's Divine About Divine Law, uh, you argue that in the West, you know, however we define that, uh, we've inherited two conceptions of divine law, the Greek tradition and, and the biblical tradition. So at the risk of being reductive, because in your book you exhaustively discuss <laughs> all the different <laughs> other models and permutations of divine law, what are the Greek and biblical conceptions of divine law? Yeah. Essentially, when you would ask, say, a Stoic thinker what it means to say that a law is divine, the answer would be, that a law is divine by virtue of certain qualities or characteristics it has. It has the quality of being rational truth that's immutable and universal. If you ask one of the authors of the Bible, an Israelite tradition, what does it mean to say that a law is divine, they would tell you that it is that a law that's divine has its source in the divine will. Um, there's not a criterion of character or quality necessary that necessarily that marks it as divine, but its source, the will of the divine being. We can then investigate it and see what its qualities and characters are, but um, its characteristics aren't an assumed given from the outset as they are for the Greeks. So for the Stoics, divine law is the logos, which is the rational order that animates the universe. And that rational order, by virtue of being rational, is um, it is immutable universal truth. For, and it's also, most importantly, unwritten, right? It isn't a set of legislation and written laws. Um, by definition, anything that is written down set of laws is human law in, in Greek thought. They have this basic binary, the laws of the state, which are particular to a given state, consisting of legislation and rules written down, mutable, you know, imperfect, um, not necessarily rational. They can be arbitrary. We stop at red lights because we decide to stop at red lights to, you know, impose order, not because redness makes us actually stand still in our tracks, right? Um, so that's their notion of, of human law. And divine law is in this dichotomy, this Greek dichotomy, not any of those things, but a rational order, an unwritten order that governs the universe. And the rational wise men can see it in the order of, of, the, of nature itself, embedded inherently, this impersonal order, the rational man can see it and align his behavior in an ordered way that corresponds with that and doesn't actually therefore really need positive written law. And so in antiquity, uh, where we have a biblical tradition where a god gives a written set of legislation to a particular people, one that is somewhat mutable. We see four times Moses returns to God to say, you know, there's a gap in the law. We don't know what to do. What should we do? And God himself even um, says, here's a mechanism for changing the law as you might need it. So it is uh, particular. It has clearly random or arbitrary elements in it designed to separate the Israelites from other people. The dietary laws and purity laws are specifically, so you'll be holy to God, he says, and you will not be like the other nations, um, but different and therefore 
it's an arbitrary thing that makes you different. Um, so to the, to the ancient Jews who had both of these, who were participating in both of these discourses, they saw this incongruity and the fact that the biblical legal tradition, the law revealed at Sinai, looked like what Stoics and ancient Greeks would call human law. And that created a real issue for many ancient Jewish thinkers, how to reconcile the incongruity between the Stoic and prevailing Hellenistic notions of divine law and the biblical tradition of divine law. So in part two of your book, you discuss two different strategies for that, that ancient Jews employed for grappling with this, mm -hmm. uh, with this tension or the two different conceptions. Mm -hmm. uh, the first you see exemplified amongst others in the works of Philo of Alexandria uh, from the turn of the era from the first century CE. Uh, and the second you locate in the thought of the Apostle Paul. Uh, so can you elaborate upon these two strategies for br bridging the gap and minding the gap, as right, you call it? Right, exactly. And I'll talk a little bit about this in my next book because I'm, I'm my next book is actually really a sequel to the first book. Um, my next book is going to be on humor, I like to tell people. And it is actually a direct sequel from this book because um, the main theory about humor is the incongruity theory, the idea that it's incongruity um, that leads to humor. But the more refined um, theories of, of humor recognize that not all incongruity leads to humor, that some incongruities cause distress or people react in different ways to incongruity. So in the Divine Law book, this incongruity sparks different responses among different Jewish groups. Some are distressed by it. And when you're distressed by an incongruity, you want to end it. And so they seek to resolve it by saying there is no incongruity. They transfer the characteristic qualities of the Greco-Roman conception of divine law to the written legislation given at Sinai, chief among them, of course, being Philo, who does this in the most developed way, who argues that the Torah, the written legislation given to Moses, is the divine law. It is immutable, and he gives all sorts of arguments and evidence for the fact that it is universal, it is rational, it is true. It is immutable and it is unwritten, remarkably enough, because he argues the patriarchs observed it before it was given at Sinai. How could they do this? They were perfect rational sages. We know the rational sage can read the written law, the unwritten natural law in nature. And therefore, if they could align themselves with the Torah of Moses by reading it in nature, clearly the written version is just an icon or an emblem of the natural divine law. So one way to, to, to rid yourself of the incongruity between these two, which was distressing, um, was to say it doesn't exist and to make it vanish by equating the two. Qumran incidentally does it in a slightly different way. They transfer the properties, but they transfer the properties of the written law given to Israel at Sinai to the laws of nature. They too are positive commands written down on heavenly tablets the sun, the stars, the moon, they follow the commandments of God, not an inherent and personal order written in nature, but God's will. And they can God even, commanded that they the command, world should exist this and way. And continues right. to, to the extent that they can disobey. Yes. So Enoch has the tour of heaven and he sees the stars being punished who did not come out when they were told right. to. They're being punished. Ideas of obedience and disobedience to law, that only applies to positive law and commands, not to the law of nature. So so Qumran, they're, they're, they're also trying to bring the two together, to give the qualities of one to the other. And bridge that gap because the incongruity was distressing and disturbing to them. We want our law to meet the characteristic, um, the criteria of divine law according to the, the criteria that prevailed in the surrounding culture. 
right? Which is kind of an interesting thing to say about Qumran, right? Because we think of them as these sectarians off in the desert. Right, we think of them as the anti-Hellenistic, and that's true, but that doesn't mean you're not still reacting to the larger cultural forces and coming up with your own way to cope with the challenge that those forces have, have presented to you. So one is to bridge the gap. And the other way to sort of end the, the, the distress of the incongruity was Paul's, which was to say, you know, I guess it's not divine law. I, I, I buy your definition, Stoics. I think divine law should be this thing written on the heart that's just true logos or what have you, and the Mosaic law wasn't that, and you don't need to follow that, Gentiles. I have a complicated vision of Paul. I think actually he was a two-pather and that that was really more of marketing pitch to Gentiles who really are not gonna wanna follow this law. And this was a way of saying, you can come and be um, part of the, you can be sons of God, you can be part of the community of Israel, you don't have to obey this law. I think it's because he was an exclusivist. He he felt that the law was only given to um, the genealogical sons of Abraham. And that relates to your earlier work in the sense right. that he couldn't, that he he felt that Gentiles could not, could not become Jews. Exactly. Could not convert. He was, Right, in that sort of sectarian Qumran Ezra line of thinking, I put Paul there. Whereas Jesus followers in Jerusalem who said, no, people can convert, they can, Gentiles can perform the, the Torah and they can convert and so on. Um, the sort of nominalist understanding of identity. Um, they actually were the inclusive ones. And it's fascinating to me that New Testament scholarship for the last, you know, <laughs> many hundreds of years has told the reverse story, like thinking of Paul as the inclusivist who threw open the gates and the Jesus followers were the narrow exclusivists who were forcing Gentiles to become Jews. I think it's the opposite. And this is part of this sort of, the, the, the new school of Paul that sees Paul's audience not as Jews, Paul's audience are Gentiles. In those letters to the Romans and the Corinthians, right. yeah, I think they were all Gentiles. So like Galatians yeah, also. Yeah, Galatians, okay. exactly. No, that's, and yeah, so those are the two, those were the two responses. One was to try to equate the two and to end the incongruity. The other is to say, there's no incongruity because you're right, Greeks, this just isn't a divine law and it's not the natural law. It was something given temporarily like a pedagogue for a child waiting for humanity to mature until such time as faith comes in, in the Messiah, right, who Paul thought was about to return imminently. So I'd like to come back to the other side of incongruity, but before we do that, you know, in part three of your book, which is the longest section of the book uh, by, by, by a great by a margin, <laughs> uh, you, you outline a third response to the clash between biblical and Greek conceptions of law, uh, and that's the response of the rabbis in the Talmud and rabbinic literature. So can you briefly explain this approach? Uh, and also comment on its significance for contemporary debates in Western culture and society about the nature of law. Right. Well, and this does in fact bring us back to incongruity because the second way people respond to incongruity is with pleasure. Uh, and so uh, humor is cognitive shifts that we experience not with distress but with pleasure. And I think that the rabbis experience this incongruity with pleasure. <laughs> and I think that's why they doubled down on it. And they construct for us a portrait of divine law that breaks with the prevailing Hellenistic notion that the divine and divine law must be immutable, rational truth. And they said, no, a law can be divine and particular. A law can be divine and not necessarily allied with truth. And this, it can be divine and not necessarily rational, divine and not necessarily immutable. And what I noticed after finishing the book and as I speak to people and I give various lectures, when I get to these texts, everyone in the room is laughing and laughing with delight, not laughing with ridicule or mockery, but laughing with delight. There's just something wonderful about so many of these stories where, where God is fallible, um, God uh, does something irrationally and 
and it's just everyone just sort of smiles. God is defeated and smiles. Um, the, the, the law seems to deviate from the truth or God is embarrassed by the truth or is working desperately to make sure he doesn't judge Israel according to the truth and so on. Uh, these, you're smiling too, right? I can see it already. So I mean, I'm already thinking so about all the right, passages. But, and you know these passages, right? And I began to think there's— so You don't go to court when God is Exactly. You wait truth. until the second half of the day right, right. when he's gotten—you know, he's not studying Torah anymore because Torah is truth. God forbid he should judge you when he's studying Exactly. These are funny. These are funny. And I began to realize that this funny was an incredibly serious funny. That they were funny for a reason. They were not going to react to this with the kind of apologetic distress of a philo or the abandonment of a Paul, but to hold on to this tradition and to double down on the incongruity in a way and say, why should it be otherwise? Um, and perhaps there's something to be said for not making a divine fetish out of truth or a divine fetish out of reason or a divine fetish out of immutability. Fetishes are, after all, idolatry. So this, I think, is a deep way to avoid idolatry. And of course, the best way to demote an idol is to laugh at it. <laughs> Right. In other so, words, the concept of bitul as it plays yeah. into that of, of cancellation, of nullification. Uh, so now that you've solved divine law, <laughs> um, so and 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 you're moving on to humor. What are some of the what are some of the dimensions of your new project that we should look forward to? That's the starting point. What I just explained to you in some ways will be the opening of the book. I'll say, you know, I, I just wrote this book <laughs> where I talked about the incongruity. And I didn't really apply to it theories of, of humor and sort of psychological reactions to incongruity. So I want to psychologize a little bit our ancient characters. So a very short chapter will kind of review the claim that um, the rabbis, I think, embrace this incongruity. And that is why we see so much humor in these precisely in these accounts where they're dealing with the nature of the divine law. Um, but then I want to go on to make a larger claim about the rabbis and absolutisms in general, that I think this is one piece in a larger mosaic um, that we can uh, assemble from rabbinic texts, which shows a sort of posture, posture of vigilance against any form of absolutism, um, including the absolutism that threatens from within when we take ourselves too seriously. I think it's essentially because the conception of the divine that underlies so much of the rabbinic world and uh, it is one that is dynamic. The, the Greek notion of the divine is that which is static, stasis, the universal, the one, static perfection. And I think that for the rabbis, God is a God involved in history and God is dynamic. And whoever reify um, God in some sort of static notion of the one um, is, again, as I said, a kind of fetishizing of something our own minds might find easy, but uh, is idolatry in essence, <laughs> is to worship the one or the static as if somehow that's divine. Who are we to say? So I think that their notion is, is very much a, a dynamic God. And for that reason, one has to constantly be vigilant and constantly be ready to laugh at what we're about to declare sacred and beyond and inviolable and beyond laughter. No, they'll always take that last little moment to say, Eh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose in closing, you know, one of the themes that, that, that I think runs through your work and has always struck me, on a, not, not just on an intellectual level, but on a personal level, is that you're wrestling with deeply textual phenomena. You're reading text carefully and you're involved in a tradition of commentary and, and, and that spans, um, you know, the Hellenistic world and also medieval, the medieval world. Um, and yet this sort of deeply 
uh, this sort of deep insider's discourse in all of your work is made profoundly relevant for contemporary society, and in particular, you know, the American kind of Western society in which we're embedded. So do you see sort of the Talmud Bavli as kind of an underutilized resource oh, for do. Western thinking? I do. I see. And that, in fact, I think at the end of the book, I say something about wanting to bring the rabbinic view of divine law out of the shadows because it's really been um, lost with the subsequent mm -hmm. tradition, which does begin to embrace some of these notions, Maimonides and others. There were always people pushing back. There's always been a, a, a struggle. But it has its own modern proponents, you know, some of these other views that I think see themselves as deeply Talmudic, but in many ways are actually promoting, I think, notions of divine law that, that really go against we're, what the rabbis were fighting against. So I, I do think it's an underutilized resource. And I, I appreciate what you said about um, textually based, but also larger ideas. That's how I, I, I like to describe myself. I'm, you, you, there's no substitute. You have to begin with the text. You have to end with the text. You always have to be checking the text. And there's no substitute for that. You just simply, and whenever I start a project, I'm just gathering text and gathering, gathering, and reading and reading, reading text, and then see what emerges from there, which is great fun because I'm usually surprised. I never thought I would come up with what I said about Paul. Never in a million years did I think. I, I always thought, of course, he's the whatever, the inclusive. Who knew, right? Uh, and so I've loved that. I, and I've so been you're not surprised. Surprised by Congruity. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm delighted by incongruity. A very good point. And also some of the things I've found about the Bavli, where as you move later and get more towards the Stam, they push back on some of these ideas, which was interesting to me in, uh, in this book, that they're the ones who get more anxious about the incongruity and sometimes start to chip away at earlier strands, which are delighting in it. Never thought I would find that. So it's, you've gotta, you've gotta read your sources. You cannot predict where they're gonna lead you. And so you have to really, your story has to emerge from there. But there should be a story, right? There should be something to say. And I think another thing that, um, has made this project relevant to the larger world beyond the world that I mostly inhabit intellectually. So it's being, you know, read by people who do legal theory or who do Western intellectual history, um, is the following insight, which I had after writing the book, <laughs> um, which is that in an odd way, the Stoics and the biblical writers were actually trying to do the same thing. I've always thought of them as so different. But then I realized that both of them were trying to ground the norms that guide human behavior in something more than mere convention. They wanted in some way to ground it in the divine. They chose very different ways to do it. The Stoics chose nature and asserted against a long Greek tradition that said nature was chaotic, asserted that nature in fact had this rational order and that as if we could replicate that exactly, we would have perfect morality. We can't, however, we should strive to, right? And we can get close by using reason. And every now and then we even have flashes of insight. But by making our laws through reason, we would come as close as we could to that perfect but unattainable divine law. And in this way, he gave written laws more authority, as long as they're perfected and tweaked through reason to the best of our ability. He gave them more authority without making them absolute because they're always human and they're never that, that divine law. In a very different way, biblical writers did the same thing. They connected the written laws to the divine, but instead of placing it in divine reason, they placed it in divine will, all right? So the written laws have the authority behind them of being divine in the sense that they stem from a divine will. But because that divine will is interactive and situational and responsive and involved in history, the law isn't absolutized. It is evolving and responsive and situational in the same way that the Stoics tried to keep the law, written law, evolving, situational, responsive, even though its authority now 
Nile was somehow connected with its connection to the divine through reason. And the biblical writers, it was authorized, it was more authoritative because of its origin in a divine will. Both managed to come up with an account of the written laws that govern us, that gave them more authority, grounded them in something beyond the, the human, the merely human, and yet kept both of them flexible, situational, responsive, responsive not immutable. What happens when these two traditions come together is that ironically, the characteristics of divine law according to the Stoics, truth, rationality, and immutability, are transferred to the written law of the Hebrew Bible, creating what both labored so hard to prevent, the Bible of Western tradition, which is to say a written text that is deemed to be immutable, rational truth. And that, in, that, in essence, is really the story of our society. It is. It is. And Amazing. I think it's what both of them labored so hard to prevent. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest has been Professor Christine Hayes. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, and to the listeners, I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scholars in Resonance, a Yeshiva University podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski, and edited by David Chabinski. Until next time.